Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. Here we dive deep into the diverse worlds of regenerative living, permaculture, and natural building as we aspire to help you reach your highest potential for yourself, for your community, and for this beautiful planet that we share. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher, and I'm thrilled to guide you through this week's episode. So let's jump right in. Society Publishers' books are so green, you could eat them. We print all our books in North America, never overseas, on 100% post-consumer recycled paper. We've been a carbon-neutral company since 2006. Our employees are shareholders, and we are a certified B Corporation. At New Society, we care deeply about what we publish, but also about how we do business. Find out more at newsociety.com. For years now, I've been hearing feedback and questions from listeners of this podcast. Many of you out there have been piecing together your education. You've taken your PDC, you may have taken some other gardening or more advanced design courses, and though you're passionate about ecological work, many of you still lack the confidence to break out on your own and start working as a professional designer. And that's why I'm really excited to tell you about the new digital permaculture design course taught by Dan Halsey, the founder of Southwoods Ecological Design and United Designers International. In just five days, this online intensive will guide you through every part of the design process, from client intake to the final presentation, with a specific focus on digital design and drawing. You'll also get a year of access to the Permaculture Plant Database, live interactive online courses, access to the United Designer Symbol Library, files, professional templates, and much more. This course is a fast track to working as a professional on the cutting edge of ecosystem restoration, and for a limited time, listeners of this show can now get $100 off the course by entering the code AEPODCAST at checkout. The course starts on July 29th, so hurry to reserve your place at permacultureprofessionals.com. And if you want to learn more about Dan Halsey and his work, check out the interview I did with him about running a professional design company in episode 117 or by clicking on the link to the show notes in this episode. We need professional ecological designers now more than ever. Sign up for the digital permaculture design course today at permacultureprofessionals.com. All right, everybody, today's conversation was recorded back in the last few weeks before I left Guatemala when I had the chance to sit down with my good friend and fellow permaculture educator, Mordor Goth. Now, I know that's a tricky name. He's from Iceland. We all call him Moli. Mordor, or Moli, is a permaculture pioneer in Iceland who has been traveling between countries to learn and share what he knows. In Iceland, he has hosted multiple events and PDCs with legendary teachers like Albert Bates and Robert Francis, among others. In this session, Moli and I speak about the more problematic aspects of the permaculture pedagogy that we found in practice. As with any teaching methodology, permaculture can become dogmatic and even cult-like when practitioners take certain teachings as gospel and forget the essential aspects of observation, reassessment, and flexibility when techniques don't apply to your context. Now, Moli offers great insights from his years as a permaculture educator and project coordinator on some of the aspects of permaculture that he feels need deeper explanation and clarification to help avoid pitfalls and misunderstandings, especially from people who are new to the concepts and often don't have any experience working directly with nature to draw from. Now, many of you may find that you disagree with some or all of Moli's conclusions or maybe know of elements of the permaculture teachings that weren't mentioned in this episode and that you think are essential to include in a conversation about shortcomings or undesirable aspects surrounding permaculture. Now, if that's the case, I would love to hear your opinions. You can comment on the threads below or email me directly at info at abundantedge.com. 
This is a controversial topic that I'm really looking forward to exploring further. So with that said, I'll turn things over now to my good friend, Molly. All right, everyone, I'm here with my good friend, Molly, and we're just gonna jump right in because we've already uh, kind of gotten started and have been talking for quite a bit of time. Um, so Molly, why don't you get us a bit of an idea of your background and how you got started in permaculture education? Yeah, so uh, yeah, my background is like, in my in my youth, I was do, doing innovation and, and business, and then that le- led into other things, and I became disabled, and then I went for agriculture. And this was all in Iceland? Yeah, all in Iceland, and I ended up in the agriculture university, and while I was there, I got focused on aquaponics, and I thought it would like save the world with food production. And then I realized that the problem is in food production, and on my path, I found permaculture. Um, so if the problem isn't food production, I mean, I know we'll explore this a little bit more later, but what were some of your findings in, in the shortcomings of... I mean, I, I realized that it's very easy to produce enough food for everyone. Um uh, but if that's so easy, why isn't it done? And then I looked into all these like aid programs and basically realized these are systems that hamper the local economies instead of helping them uh, because people can become so dependent and they can't sell their own product. So instead of teaching people how to grow themselves, people are taught to rely on outside help, which is kind of a structure that and is this specific to Iceland, or have you seen this all over the world? No, this is all over the world. Um, in Iceland, we deal with completely different problems because we have to ship in almost all the food. Um, and very often, it's it's more ecological to, to buy food from other countries and ship them to Iceland rather than growing them in Iceland because of the short summer and harsh conditions. Um, we have very good soil, but... It's not warm enough for the microorganisms to break down the nutrients, so we get all the nutrients out. Mm-hmm. Uh, only a few degrees more, and we would be like extremely fertile. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so I found permaculture in, in 2011 and went to a perma- Nordic permaculture festival in 2013. And that's where I kind of made the step of like, all right, this is what I want to do. And I, what was it about permaculture that kind of clicked with you that inspired you to pursue it as a way of life? I mean, I had been so involved with aquaponics and then I realized that permaculture was like way bigger and it had multiple solutions and and it seemed to yeah, be a more holistic way of of uh tackling the problems and yeah, I wanted to get on a path where I was part of the solution instead of the problem because I definitely was on the other side. Um, yeah, I'm sure a lot of us can relate to that, you know. <laughs> um, a lot of my coming into this way of looking at holistic design through permaculture lens and, and other ways of thinking came from first the identification that the way that I was living was not only unsustainable but actually destructive. And I think that's kind of the catalyst that that pushes a lot of people into re-examining the way that they live and the systems and the infrastructure that supports us. Yeah. Yeah. I would imagine that's pretty, like you said, uh, apparent in in Iceland, in a country where a huge amount of the consumption of its citizens is imported from other places. And it's, in a lot of cases, impractical to produce a whole lot 
there, which may have even played into the culture and the history, seen as they were very seafaring and exploratory people since the beginning, no? Well, it's, it's, that, that is at least the, the history that's portrayed. In reality, Icelanders were not very uh, exploratory. It's, it's more the people running away from their problems and getting stuck in Iceland ah. is the unwanted rebels and and that's kind of the identity that we still have we we rebel easily and and uh, it's very hard to coerce an Icelander that basically means that we go the other way which is how we have been able to maintain our uh, identity and independence while Many big powers like England and and China have tried to influence us a, a lot, and I think that's definitely a lesson in that in having defiance, even though you're tiny, mm. and knowing your powers. Well, I really want to come back and explore more about the intricacies of Icelandic culture because it's something that I don't know very much at all about. But let's talk first about how you've started to apply permaculture knowledge and education in your work since coming across it in that original festival in Norway. Yeah, so in Iceland, we started and we, we, like, I was very convinced in 2013 that we needed a PDC course, a permaculture design course. And so at that festival, I, I talked to a... Uh, teacher and and he agreed to come to Iceland and we also agreed that we needed a permaculture association uh, so when I came back I went straight for that and it turned out there was another group also planning that with the same teacher so we kind of banded together and in 2013 we had the first permaculture uh, course in Iceland or PDC course since 82 when Graham Bell came there and, and taught and that led to the forming of the Permaculture Association of Iceland. And since then, I've had another PDC with Alba Bates, brain fart, uh, sorry, no. uh, uh, another PDC with Alba Bates and Robin Francis. And what I've been working with in Iceland is trying to basically translate all the common methods that are used in permaculture so that they like in the way of, of making them fit Iceland because we have very different conditions. We don't have clay. Uh, we don't have ants. We There's a lot of things we don't have, but we also have resources that many do not. So it's it's been a fun time of, of figuring out how things can work for us. And also because permaculture is very focused on warm climates and we don't really have that at all um, well not necessarily i feel like it uh, it has contextualized solutions for all different types of microclimates latitudes and uh, soil types but definitely a lot of the exploration has been where there is more agriculture where there are more uh, people living just because you have those human resources to do the research and so you're saying that you know perhaps the extreme northern climates like you're using as your context for Iceland or maybe even Alaska or northern mm. Sweden and Norway are less explored. And so tell me about some of the aspects of the context that you had to design to and figure out when teaching people in those areas. So, yeah, first we had to identify what methods actually fit well and, and uh, it really, Hugel culture, like making mounds that, that bring fertility for many years seemed to be the the way to go and it really worked out we had some courses on that and that's where people really got engaged mm. and 
So we've got got a little bit of a hulkulture frenzy all over Iceland uh, because that's a method that really, really works for us. Uh, we, because we need to make microclimates always. So that's what we focus on, how to make microclimates. And I'm, I'm part of a big forestry project that is 4,620 hectares. And I have five hectares. And at that site, we're developing methods of how to increase fertility so that forestry is easier instead of just shoving down plants and hoping that some of them survive. Mm -hmm. And also that leads to a very simple e ecosystem. And we're trying to figure out different ways. And, and yeah, we've had some findings. And the focus there is on taking the resources that society is throwing away and utilizing them to... So we, we have access to the organic dump of the county. We get a lot of branches and organic materials and we make mounds and, and we, you know, kind of break the wind lines and the cold lines so the, the plants will have shelter. Mm. That's kind of the, the main focus at the moment of, of my work. And so what sort of success have you found in creating these microclimates in order to grow things that wouldn't be able to work otherwise so uh so the successes are almost accidental um we were doing this this sim more simpler version of a uh, culture just branches and then shoving or organic material in it and we were hoping to create like an area where we could grow in it but then it turned out the sides of of our mound they begin to grow way faster than anything else in the area so we realized that both we were sheltering the area and that led to uh, better ecology and that uh, we, we shouldn't really focus on growing in the mound but around it. And this is, that, that has now been pretty successful. So it's, it's all about testing the methods and then recording your, your successes and your failures. And we've probably learned way more from our failures because like we didn't realize how incredibly intense the wind is where we go i mean mm. when there's a storm the cars actually get moved so wow yeah so a few branches are definitely gonna get moved so we ended up making things bigger um which is a direction that i i did not think we would go in but uh we have to make things bigger and stronger um and also diversifying like the different testing different things in different locations and welcoming invasive species which is interesting mm, yeah because pioneer species yeah that, that find a way to to work within the niches of those yeah, spaces huh? because iceland is one of the most affected countries by humans in the world if not the most um and it's very, very uh, widespread, the, the myth that Icelandic, Iceland has pristine nature, one that's everything. But um, we only have a few percent of forests, like two or three. And we need an invasion uh, because there's no country in Europe that is losing as much topsoil. Uh, we have the biggest desert in Northern Europe. It's a very cold desert, but yeah. still a desert. Sure. Um, Deserts mostly defined by... By precipitation, well, or lack of, or, or the how much plant life or um, organic matter can yeah. be supported, and there is almost none in wow. the Icelandic one. So, and is that partly due to the volcanic nature of the soil? No, that's that's almost fully due to humans and their um, 
irresponsible way of, of living. Okay, so there is a lot of potential for reforestation and adding uh, life back to these damaged ecosystems, but it's it's an uphill battle now that it's been so severely degraded? Yeah. Uh, I mean, most of Iceland or, or yeah should be forested, um, and it, very much of it was forested, big forest. And is this 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 uh, yeah? It's it, we're always learning more and more how it was. We now know that there was barley. They had cows. It was quite fertile when when um, the the settlement was the most vital in Iceland, and they had whole towns that were doing um, working with metal, blacksmithy towns. Eighty people living in a town focused on ma- working with metal. And that's a lot of forest that needs to be burned for that to sure, go on. Sure, sure. So that might the be... fuel sources required to smelt steel and, yeah. and iron. Well, it was basically before steel. And be, we, okay. have, we have a metal that is basically the strongest uh, iron. And it's, because of it, natural deposits there? Yeah, and, and wow. it's in a swampy condition. So they, they get like, yeah, there's acid conditions. So it becomes a little bit harder or more dense to be precise. And that was worked, and then we shipped that out. So Iceland began as an industrial colony, it seems, and which is fitting because we are now still in that mode. We are the mm. third biggest processor of uh, aluminium, which is also a big problem in Iceland because we're losing money on selling electricity to them at the same time as they're polluting. And because Iceland is small... They allow the staff of the aluminium companies to monitor their own pollution. Mm. So the responsibility towards uh, in the environment is very low mm. in Iceland. It's becoming better. Like people are realizing that we are Icelanders are are very polluted, um, and the the environmental consciousness is pretty low. And that's that's been main focus of my work trying to educate people about us actually being the problem do you see things starting to move in the right direction as education and awareness is increased definitely definitely and now in the the new year's talk of the politicians like there was a lot of talk of environment um so it seems to be that the consciousness is not only rising but we're at this tipping point where action might might be implemented but we've had pretty well government that i don't really agree with in these in these aspects and even the green party kind of going against uh the gardeners by wanting to ban a lot of species and um the species we need to to kind of be able to stop the erosion Mm. uh, because they don't want foreign species sure um at the same time as we've moved, like taken away so many of the species that were there, and as I say, we we need that invasion. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's go back and look at it more from a, an educational perspective. I know that this is something that you and I have talked about in the past quite a bit, but you've identified quite a few shortcomings within the pedagogy of permaculture as you've worked all over the world. I mean, we're here in Guatemala now. I know you've worked in tons of other countries, Mm -hmm. especially in Europe and Brazil. Um, Tell me about some of the shortcomings that you started to find as you've explored different contexts and, and places in teaching the conventional permaculture pedagogy? I think the, the, the 
biggest problem was and is uh, simply what is permaculture. So it took me, what, three to four years to figure out what is permaculture because nobody really gives the same answer. And when a word means many things, it loses value because then it doesn't mean one thing. And that is also the, the problem of the cultures of permaculture. So in different countries, it means different things. And this makes it very hard for communication at times. And it makes it hard for the image of permaculture to be true. And in, in Norway, it's like viewed upon by the public more like a, some hippie weird stuff. And while in Denmark, it's quite like professional and, and uh, respected. And how do you think it's taken on different identities in countries so close to each other? Um, it's because those countries have quite defined cultures of their own, mm -hmm. but also it's the, how to say, the, the key people or the people who stand in front and present, they are perhaps presenting different things. Okay. And while the definition of permaculture is not so fixed, they will be presenting different ideas so permaculture is not the same thing for many people and in its core just the origin of it permanent agriculture um, which is kind of an oxymoron because we know that like what we're teaching is not permanence we're teaching like evolution and, and transcendence like I agree with this because I've always saw or seen management of, of living dynamic systems as inherently impermanent. Now, certainly you can move towards a state of permanence or resilience far beyond how conventional agriculture has been practiced in the past with its uh, very fast cycles of degradation and needing to replenish things as they become depleted. But any dynamic living system is inherently impermanent its nature is to change and evolve over time. And so, yeah, the, the notion of permanence I find to be somewhat misleading, though it is a step towards that direction when contrasted with conventional definitions of agriculture or culture itself. Yeah. And, and but I also like after you know, reading up and, and figuring out why they named it, it was the reason was that they looked at the chemical agriculture or modern agriculture um, and saw that it it wouldn't last long. So that's okay. Let's try to develop something that has more of a permanence. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I agreed with that. I mean, I, I named my own organization Perma Village, um, kind of combining permaculture and eco village uh, design, and then. Then I learned how kind of how I didn't even agree with my own name. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I get it how that happens, and yeah, but but it's it's kind of leading people in the wrong conclusion if if they think that this is something permanent, because you always at least in the conventional sense, right? Like yeah. it, you sort of set it and forget it, or you'd build it once and it, it remains for an indefinite period of time. I think reestablishing the the definition at least in these contexts of what perma permanence or permaculture is referring to is much more an ability for the systems and uh, the endeavors that we that we implement to go on for as long as possible though they will be changing transforming and evolving in that process yeah yeah if it's looked at as a 
permanent system that continuously evolves, then then that is a sense of permanence. Sure. But yeah, but yeah, the main problem is this different definitions. So it means different things. We have different groups within permaculture that are promoting different elements. For me, it looks like permaculture has become big enough that it will split into subgroups. Mm. And that kind of might save us in, in the in the sense of having different definitions. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a very good uh, evolution because it functions like an ecology. It functions like a forest system. Sure. Permaculture. As something evolves, it kind of factions off and there's like subgroups that evolve in their own way, somewhat independent of the group. And like maybe the things that I've seen have been the emergence of concepts like uh, regenerative agriculture, mm -hmm. which really takes uh, many of the permaculture principles and applies them to production methods that are large enough to bring uh, profit and produce cash crops or food at enough of a scale to interact with the economy as we know it. But then there's also been subgroups of, you know, social permaculture or political permaculture and using the design ethics and science in different applications, though it may have been taught through an ecological or gardening lens. Yep. What other um, kind that, of side that, groups have you seen? I mean, this connects to also another thing that I think is faulty in, in permaculture is that uh, it was taught as like, all right, here's the solutions and we go forth and we're like, yeah, it's awesome. Let's change the world. But it turns out that it's way more complex. Like okay. just running a farm needs more than the skills of knowing how to plant plants. Mm. You need to do the books. You need to know the legalities. You need mm. to have the sense of what to sell and what to grow. And often this is, this is portrayed as like, oh, that's the easy part. Uh, but for most people that have the connection to nature, they might have a hard time with the other aspects. I've seen a lot of that, especially yeah. in the interviews that I've done with other uh, growers, gardeners and educators. One of the most consistent things I've heard repeated is that there are these missing pieces. Once you've learned how to connect and interact with the ecology in which you're growing or producing something, there's a whole nother step that definitely isn't included in conventional permaculture education where uh, identifying a brand, um, advertising and reaching market, distribution networks, accounting and all of these other things that are required to have a sustainable business or a profitable business model are, are what tend to hold people back from finding their version of success with proper ecological management. Absolutely. Yeah, and yeah, that that seems to be the problem that I've seen is like halting most of the projects. In Europe, there are extremely few pro permaculture projects that actually make money mm. just on growing, but everybody is in, or most groups are in education, yep. and that's where they make their income. So they're teaching a method, that basically teaching that this is a way to go, while they're still not going there themselves. Yeah. Uh, yeah. unless they, they also teach more. So we need that evolution. It's the, the, the forest needs to get new branches. It needs to grow new species. Um, and that is developing for sure. And, and I'm, I'm going towards like, uh, eco-social development rather than permaculture because that's kind of a way to, to, to gather the same ethics while, 
in my case, making projects that create an income. Mm-hmm. And if we can then use the the innovation and, and the education from there to make it transform so we can create projects, involve local people, and slowly but surely they can take the, the, the companies over by offering more work and therefore going to the next level and the next level. So my, my work here in Guatemala is trying to emulate nature in that way. How? So let's talk about maybe some of the other shortcomings that you've identified. We've talked now about um, m- perhaps slightly inadequate preparation for the business and economic side of turning ecological management into a profitable enterprise. What are some of the other things that, that you found sort of fall short in this pedagogy? Um, well, it's in the, in the actual learning materials of the PDC, it has in many, many cases kept very similar to the start. Like, uh, and then it hasn't evolved in the pedagogy itself, the teaching methods. There are many, many that have evolved quite a lot and that's very admi- uh, admirable. But the, the core teachings need to be quite massively updated. Mm-hmm. Uh, just the education on pollution, education on greenhouse gases, uh, there are so many new findings and, and it's evolving like every week. The information we're getting, especially now that, it, well, some people in power, some people that have the resources have realized that this is a very, very, very serious problem and humanity is at risk. Mm-hmm. Um, so it also focused, like what I have seen in the PDCs is, the focus on the problems first and then the solutions. And for me, it doesn't show all the problems and it doesn't show perhaps solutions that are highly functional. Mm-hmm. Um, we need bigger scale solutions. It, it's been very focused on the home gardener. And while they can certainly do a lot, then we still also need to help bigger projects. We need to to help bigger projects become sustainable or regenerative. Um, like my favorite client would be some of the bad guys. I would want to work with Monsanto because they need the help. Mm-hmm. I don't need to help another permaculture person. They are already on that path. Yeah. We yeah. need to extend the, the olive branch and, and work with those that are causing the main problems. I really like that message. Uh, I wish more people were focused on that as well. I've found that the challenge of humanizing our enemies, so to speak, or uh, to reach out and, like you said, extend an olive branch or even just to accept that not everybody is on this path or understanding of the long-term effects of the actions of their businesses or their enterprises should not be a reason to end the conversation or to simply demonize their actions. Their business models have found success in an outdated ecological and societal model, which as a group, we should be encouraging them to update from the successes that they've found rather than, uh, alienating them and demonizing them, which would probably prevent the collaboration and the sharing of resources, which quite frankly, they have a whole lot more of than many of these grassroots efforts. And if we were able to collaborate, I really think uh, progress could be accelerated Mm -hmm. and uh, collaboration could be facilitated, moving the needle much, much faster for everybody. 
Like, just think if uh, we'll use Monsanto as, a, as an example because they're so commonly demonized by the regenerative agriculture, permaculture communities. If we could help to convince them to start to shift their business model towards one that creates resilience, regeneration on all levels rather than monopolization of resources, genetic information, and domineering uh, methods of agricultural production, just think how much faster we would all get to this goal that we, we claim claim to be to uh, be focusing on, but we're kind of cutting off our, our resource base or our limbs, so to speak, by ref refusing to work with or by demonizing some of our potentially largest contributors and collaborators. Yeah, I had this experience here uh, with a international big company that has tried to privatize water. Um, and I met their environmental manager and health manager uh, by accident. And turns out that the company has a zero waste policy. And she's really frustrated that she can't work things what both of us considered the right way. That she couldn't, can't dispose of their, their access in a, in a healthy way. Because they're simply not solutions and that got me thinking all right let's focus on those solutions and it also comes to a very very common problem in environmentalism and kind of fundamentalism uh, that people are very focused on what's going wrong and they shout it from the hills and don't they don't really realize it's not really getting anything done um uh, Focusing on developing solutions and offering them to society mm -hmm. is what I think is our role. And that is how we can help. Talking about what's wrong will just mean that we sat down and we talked for a long time. Talking about what's wrong and how we can work towards a better solution. Well, these bad guys, so to say, they might simply be bad. Some of them do it intentionally for specific reasons, but... Most are simply doing this because they don't have any other viable solutions. And if they are offered viable solutions, then it's very likely that they will take them. For, for me, it's, it, society is broken. And we're using bad information in, in most of the bigger decisions. But if that's also true, then us that have the knowledge of something better we should be able to offer better solutions. So if we're as clever as we think we are, then we sh can surely fix this. Um, and I definitely think that to be the case. But we're going against the current. Mm -hmm. And we're going against the big groups that have power. They want to keep their power. And they don't have the knowledge that we do. So they don't really have a clue how to change. So on that note... Tell me about some of the ways that you've seen uh, examples of collaboration with organizations or companies that have otherwise been demonized and the, the fruitful results of opening up kind of the, the scope of who we're willing to work with and, you know, help to collaborate in a way that that shifts the not only the discussion, but it starts to move the actions of these these entities that we've otherwise identified as working against us. 
So in Iceland, there's a water bottling company, and that, of course, creates a lot of plastic waste and usually quite pollutive production. Uh, in their case, they really took measures to not pollute and only harvest responsibly the water that they had access to. And they also begin supporting environmental projects to kind of counter what pollution they they do. They change the materials of the bottles so they are more easily biodegradable. Uh, of course, they're not... It's not the best industry, but their solution is less uh, pollutive than the other ones. And I think that's a step in the right direction, and hopefully that can continue. I think that's really worth highlighting because I often hear the discussion along these topics as being quite black and white. Whether someone is contributing any kind of destruction or any of their business practices or production methods are not perfect, then they're part of the problem. And I really think that that's a, a, it's not a helpful way of framing the discussion. I think every step in the right direction should be applauded as a form of encouraging further action in those directions. Like you said, um, the industry that they're in, in this example, might be an inherently destructive one of turning a natural resource and using an industrial process to sell it and distribute it in far off places. Mm -hmm. But given that that is a profitable method for that company, obviously they're not going to completely abandon it and calling for them to do so. Like just think if someone said the same thing for your business model or the company that you work for, it would result in a lot of suffering and an upheaval of the lifestyles of the people who are involved in those, those operations. Whereas if you can encourage people to make steps in the right direction, if you can incentivize companies and organizations to start to move the needle towards something that, you know, Perhaps sustainability is an unambitious goal, but it's definitely better than ignoring the issues and remaining uh, or contributing towards a destructive model. We can much more easily jump from sustainability to regeneration than we can from destruction to regeneration. And every initiative, every step in that direction should be applauded and encouraged. Absolutely. Uh, in Iceland, I also work with a disposal company and they have in the past been known for disposing, well, in a, in a pretty bad way of, of many different materials. And I originally like, came in there to consult regarding their composting systems and I encountered uh, two biologists, which usually is not good. Uh, like, I don't understand why biologists are called in for composting instead of gardeners. And in this case, it was very true because they didn't really understand what they were doing. They knew chemical processes, but they didn't have knowledge of the ecology or basically all the steps of composting. So the whole thing was like smoke. They were coming like fumes from it. And they were like, oh, it's great. It's, uh, it's uh, smoking. Then, then it's good. We read that. And I was like, no, 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 this is, this is some of the worst things you can do because like if it heats this much, it's very um, bad composting. Um, composting of organic materials in cities is the biggest producer of greenhouse gases, much, much bigger than all of industry combined. And 
we need to kind of tackle that responsible ways. So I managed to, to help them a little bit. I gave them a lot of notes. Of course, they didn't listen to me because I didn't have a degree. But the owner of the company contacted me four years later and said that they've implemented every single thing because their experience led them to figuring these two things out. And that's just a case of relying on the academy and not the practical knowledge, hmm. which is very common. And this also led to now this company is like sending me a lot of compost. It's the compost that comes from the homes. People, you know, put their organic materials, but it's very common that other things go into it. So when it's composted, it can't be sold as compost because sure, it has certain contaminants. Yeah, it has plastic in it, but it's amazing for us in uh, trying to create uh, soil in um, in the desert. Like we we can use this, and and we have volunteers that so we can pick out the plastic, no problem. It's usually pretty big pieces because it's containers. Sure, and it's the only thing that didn't break down, so it could be fairly easy to yeah. identify. Yeah, sure. and and even, even because we're putting mounds, when it breaks down, you can so easily identify it. It has other colors and things like that. Um, but they've taken this, they've ta now taken many, many steps towards uh, environmental development. And I know from talking to them that that is, that was the original goal of the company. However, to be able to compete prize wise and, uh, and, and just, they can't sell to their customer something that the customer doesn't understand. Sure. So they can't really sell why it's good to be ecological if the customer doesn't value that. Mm -hmm. So we need to change the, the dynamics and how people value ecology. Um, in, in the Nordic countries, in Sweden and Denmark, they've been extremely uh, successful in this. And the way they did it, they taught the children how to compost and the kids came home and, and they were like, why are we not sorting our trash? And then the parent had to kind of be like, well, I'm a responsible parent. So yeah, uh, I can't show my, the pride. We don't want to show that we don't know what we're talking about. So people educated themselves. So it's the fastest education of grownups is teaching ki ki kids and making them come home and say like, Hey, this is how we do it. And the parents either go against the current and say like, no, this doesn't work or they adapt, which is, and now like the municipalities in Sweden, they're kind of fighting the, one of the biggest issues is always environmental issues. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, so we're starting to run out of time here a little bit. I got to run to another engagement. I'm actually doing a permaculture consultation for a company in the next town over. But before I let you go, can you tell our listeners a little bit about some of the initiatives that you've been spearheading lately and how they can get in touch with you and potentially even help out? So like my main project right now is a game that shows how is a card game that shows how to make project you, you simply with cards and you play a character and they build up their own camp and it's part of gamifying um, the, the education making it fun and that is in its final process and that will be on market in December and then another one is a computer pro program called steps and that's kind of steps towards su sustainability and regenerative living. And what we have there is simply a recipe program 
where we've mapped all the different sustainable methods and resources and you select what you have and it shows you what you can build and it it's kind of a solution to the two-year wall of permaculture where you try everything and then you give up because it's too complicated this helps you figure out all right i start with compost i have compost what can i do next oh earthworm farming i already have everything oh chickens i already have everything so and from that you you slowly but very very surely you grow um and then uh, we are also we're working on a lot of things. Uh, we have the educational pro projects in Iceland. We have the site that I've already mentioned. We're running courses. We will hopefully massively increase that, and, and that will lead to courses in more countries than one in within Europe, uh, because we need the grant system there. And here in Guatemala, we're making taking cacao blending it with the ceremonial cacao with different herbs uh, so people can simply put a few spoons in a, in a warm cup and they have their instant uh, instant spirituality or instant <laughs> ceremony <laughs> and the profits of that go to a project that we're starting here which is food for kids so we grow food and we give it to projects that help kids and it's starting right here in my garden and so those are the main ones there's a lot of other ones that are on pause and how can people get in touch with you to learn more about these initiatives and and find out how they can help out so my main page is my patreon fund so that's uh, patreon.com slash moli m-o-l-i and that's basically all about my work and there people the patrons they get to get to see like what i'm doing each month there's a there's a status report and, and a video report and also how it feels so I, I give the the full like like how breaking on the psychology this this work can be and and what are the pitfalls and i think it's very important for people that want to learn how to do better is to also realize the emotional toll that some things take mm. and how do we easily avoid that yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it can be quite easily avoided once you know it's there and then my organization pays is permavillage.net marvelous hey molly it's always a pleasure to come and see you i always have a good time coming and visiting you and leila here in antigua guatemala um, I'm really, I've been so inspired about all, not only the experiences and the stories you've been able to share with me from areas and projects that I had no idea about before I met you, but also the things that you've been spearheading in, you know, uh, in the last handful of months here and that you've been kicking off the ground. I'm really excited to see how they continue to develop as, uh, as we continue to stay in contact and, and I watch this stuff grow. It's been really fun. We actually, it was two weekends ago, we did kind of a perma blitz on the new place that you're renting with Layla here. And we're continuing to develop how this place can start to flourish ecologically. This has been really fun to watch as well. So I encourage the listeners to get in touch with Molly here. And yeah, until we get a chance to, to chat again, I've got to go and run and, <laughs> and give a consultation to some clients in another town. So uh, we'll catch up again soon. All right. All right. See take you. care, bud. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. As always, you can find all the show notes for this and all other episodes at AbundantEdge.com by clicking on the podcast tab in the navigation bar. 
On the website, you can also find a whole range of educational articles, as well as the services we offer from design and consulting to education. While you're there, don't forget to take a look at the courses and workshops we offer, which are all designed to empower you to take back control of your life by giving you the skills to produce your own food, manage landscapes regeneratively, build your own homes and structures with natural materials, and most importantly, to dream ever bigger about the highest potential that you could achieve for yourself, your community, and the planet that we share. I'm very grateful to all of you who have added comments and send feedback to me. Your contributions help this to be the conversation and dialogue that it's meant to be. For anyone else interested, you can email me and the whole team directly at info at AbundantEdge.com. And all of your feedback makes these episodes and interviews so much more engaging and help me to give you the information and content that you want. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you again in next week's session.